informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us. Hoping you're having a good day and glad you're letting us be a part of your day. Here's what we're going to be talking about. A lot about the farm bill. Looks like they finally have reached an agreement. We don't know the details yet, and there's still some things to do. But the House and Senate ag leaders released a statement saying we're pleased to announce that we've reached an agreement in principle on the 2018 farm bill. We are working to finalize legal and report language as well as CBO scores, but we still have more work to do. We are committed to delivering a new farm bill to America as quickly as possible. We'll have more on that a little bit later on in the program as we wait for details on the new farm bill. Also coming up today, we're going to talk with the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, Uh, We're going to talk about the shortage of veterinarians across the country and some of the things being done to try to address that shortage. But we're going to start things off with Todd Neely from DTN. Todd, how are you? Good, Mike. Thanks for having me. Plenty of RFS, uh, renewable fuels news as well as we await uh, the numbers, I guess, probably tomorrow from EPA when it comes to the RVO levels for 2019. Yeah, you know, and... From what we're hearing early on, uh, the agency's really not going to go off too much uh, from its original proposal. If you remember right, there was about a overall 3% bump in total biofuel volumes. Um, but there's a lot of issues. You know, we've talked a lot about small refinery waivers and whether those are accounted for. Um, you know, we're also hearing that nothing's really being changed in terms of percentages of renewable fuels and that sort of thing. And so... Um, it'll be interesting to see uh, what what comes out of this, but I think uh, you know what we're going to see is pretty much what we had expected. You know, 15 billion gallons of corn ethanol, and like some slight bumps in biomass-based diesel and cellulosic ethanol. Um, but I don't really think this is going to be any sort of a market driver at this point. Those numbers would have been considered pretty good news by the renewable fuels industry, if not for yeah. the waiver issue. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. You know, we saw in EPA's proposal for the RVOs, they've made an estimate that they uh, they excluded about 2.2 billion gallons of biofuels from uh, from the gasoline pool. Uh, that was 2016 and 17. Um, you know, so there, there's just a lot that's still kind of hanging out there. You know, we've had a number of court cases and challenges to this to this program, and uh, I I ultimately think that's where it's going to play out. Um, you know, EPA has kind of taken the stand that. You know, it's taking a look at things, and it's kind of deciding, you know, what it needs to do going forward. But I think probably you're going to see a, a court situation play out here. Because EPA says they are following the law on mm-hmm. the granting these waivers, but uh, evidently there's enough gray area there that certainly they're, that's why it's going to go to court, because uh, not everyone agrees with their rulings on this. Right, you know, Mike, and the thing is, and I think, I think, had we not seen some of the some of the reports coming out about larger corporations receiving these waivers, I, you know, I don't know that this would have become become a very big issue. But uh, you know, we saw a report that Chevron, uh, who had net profits of over nine billion dollars the past year, uh, they were one of the companies that received a waiver. Uh, you know, we've heard other stories, other companies the same, and so. Uh, 
you know, I think those sorts of numbers and those sorts of uh, reports kind of really put this thing out in the sunlight. Um, you know, all the years that we've had this RFS, you know, it dates back to 2005. Uh, you know, it was renewed again in 2007. All those years gone by, uh, there's been no talk about this waiver program, although it's existed from the, uh, the very outset. And you can see the loophole here, and this is what EPA is yeah. using. Uh, a company like Chevron that makes huge profits overall, but they're saying this right. particular plant is not doing well or it qualifies for the exemption. So uh, that is, yeah. I guess, that when they say that's their legal standing or that's the way they're interpreting it, uh, I think – most people would just look at the company overall that owns that plant and says, "Hey, if the company's making Absolutely. money, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if that one plant's not." But uh, there again, it comes down to that interpretation of it. It really does, and you know, I I think uh, I think what you're probably going to see is that somewhere down the road, whether it's through legislation or just action of the EPA, uh, someone's going to have to address the of that program because obviously I don't think it was intended uh, for you know for such a large company I mean Chevron uh, has plenty of assets and, and plenty of uh, wiggle room in, in you know their their bottom lines that uh, this this doesn't really affect them and now you know we're seeing a situation where rent prices have just hit you know hit nearly rock bottom um, and so at this point any waivers that come into EPA it's going to be a real challenge for them uh, to make the case that there's like an economic hardship because it's, uh, you know, the companies just aren't paying as much as they were to comply with the RFS, you know, even a year or two ago. Yeah, those companies were claiming the RINs were causing the economic hardship yeah. and, and the, the RIN prices don't justify that to claim at all, even though they may, I think maybe they've come up a little bit here lately, they're still very, very low. Um, also, we've had, right. there's some things going on that's interesting. Uh, I, there's a perception out there that 2022 is the end date for the RFS, and that's really not the case. It will continue, but there are there are some right. efforts uh, underway to how it's going to look beyond 2022. Yeah, uh, you know, Representative Shimkus out of Illinois, uh, he's been working, I would say, the past 18 months, holding hearings and so on in, in Congress, um, you know, looking at post-RFS. Um, one of the things I think that's often forgotten is that, you know, past 2022, the USDA and EPA would be working together to set volumes. And honestly, at that point, um, it really wouldn't be the same RFS program. So in some ways, it makes sense to go and look at what's next. And um, one of those measures that's out there, proposals, um, is, is to increase the use of high-octane fuels. Um, in fact, next week, there's another hearing in the House about this uh, there was a draft bill put out, kind of a discussion draft, uh, to talk about some of these issues. Um, and right away, we've seen ethanol groups opposed to this because um, if you look at the original RFS, we're supposed to have 36 billion gallons blended of biofuels uh, within the next three years, four years, and uh, we're nowhere near that. And so um, a lot there's a lot of things that went into that, uh, why that didn't occur. But uh, I think the ethanol industry, the advanced biofuels industry, they want to they want a program that's progressive and, you know, provides incentive um, to expand expand the industry as a whole. And, and right now, uh, you know, if we look past 2022 and it has something to do with high octane, and um, I, I think that offers some, some possibilities, but um, 
right now I think the details just aren't there to really see how, how beneficial that might be. Yep, a lot of questions yet to be answered. And, again, uh, we'll wait for those numbers tomorrow for the 2019 levels uh, for uh, the right. RFS and uh, see if there are any surprises. Again, it doesn't sound like we're expecting any, but uh, it's not going to be right. the same response that uh, would have been before all this waiver, these waiver issues came up. Todd, always good to talk with you. Thank yep. you very much. All right. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Todd Neely with DTN. All right, coming up next, a shortage of veterinarians across the country. This is a, a situation that's uh, it's not new, but uh, it's been getting tougher and tougher to f- find uh, veterinarians uh, in parts of the country. There's a need out there. What's being done to try to address those needs? We'll talk about it next here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're going to go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you going to do? You're going to go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. you got to dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. No, you won't, because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. I can't believe he found them. He seems sorry. We very clearly told him not to look up there. I'm honestly impressed that he was able to do it. Right? What, did he balance on that big chair? Yeah, I mean, I guess he'll just know what his gifts are this year. I really thought we had hidden them well. If they can find their presence, they can find a gun. 911, what is your emergency? Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and Family Fire. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? 
Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Institute of Food and Agriculture has announced that 74 food, animal, and public health veterinarians will receive educational loan assistance in exchange for a three-year service commitment to practice in a USDA-designated veterinary shortage area. We'll talk about that now with the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, Dr. John DeYoung. Dr. DeYoung, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Mike. Glad to be on board with you. I know this is some good news because the situation of the shortage of veterinarians across the country, it's not new, but it's been uh, it's a growing problem. How how much of a help will this be? Obviously, 74 more veterinarians will help, uh, but in the in the big picture of things, where do we stand? Um, we've still got a long ways to go, but everything is of help. There there are shortages um in, in mostly rural communities and it's a threat to animal agriculture because timely veterinary care is important to prevention detection and treatment of all sorts of animal diseases and if there's not a proper veterinary care we risk any kind of isolated disease incidents happening and then becoming widespread as an outbreak that could threaten economies rurally or even human health so it is an issue there's there's lots of uh, areas around the country as you mentioned there are 72 new awards to fill shortage areas we're grateful for that, but it's still not enough funding to meet the program's demand, and that leaves 113 identified shortage areas unfilled this year. So we, for a long time, have uh, worked um, legislatively in D.C., and we continue to ask Congress to end um, the 39% income withholding tax on the program awards, which is a problem also. Um, so um, we're still trying to fill these positions. It's important. Um, we don't have a national shortage of livestock veterinarians, but we do see that specific rural areas with large livestock populations are routinely suffering from the shortages because existing veterinarians are retiring or planning to retire in the near future, and they haven't been able to find replacements for a lot of different reasons, and most of them are economic. I was going to ask, what has led us to this uh, to this problem or to the point where we are now, and is it mostly about uh, money? Is it a financial issue? It's a, it's a large part of it, as I just said, and you're, you're concurring with that or restating it. Yes, um, the average debt for veterinarians coming out of veterinary school today is exceeding 140000 150000 more than, um, you know, some students are even two, three, four hundred $400,000 worth of, in debt. And going to a rural area where there is a limited amount of work or the return on even hard work is very, very limited as far as economically, to retire that debt makes it difficult for people to realistically look at it. And that's why a program like this is actually very helpful, is that, you know, it allows them to retire debt, which otherwise they may not be able to do. So, you know, it would be nice to do so. But even if a person goes to one of those areas, what we're finding is after the three years are up um, or their service is up, it's hard to stay in the area, even though they may have built a client base and what have you, because it may be hard for them to financially survive. Um, It's just a reality. I remember meeting with a young veterinarian from Texas is out on the West Plains of Texas about three years ago, four years ago, at one of our leadership conferences in Chicago that we have every year in January. And, you know, he said, I grew up out there and that's where I wanted to go. But 
I work, you know, seven days a week, you know, easily uh, 20 hours a day on average or whatever. He's got a wife and young kids, and he's doing that just barely to stay afloat, pay his student debt, support his family. And I think his wife was working as well, but not a veterinarian. Uh, just because of the fact that even though there's work out there, isn't enough to sustain them um, based on hours that they have to work, distance they have to travel, et cetera, in rural areas. So it's tough. So this program, while it helps, may just be a short-term help because after that three-year commitment, as you pointed out, they may move on. So how how wide of a difference is there between rural salaries and urban veterinary salaries? Um, The urban, my understanding is that um, rural area veterinarians can do reasonably well, but more so in small animals. Because it's not only that it's rural, but that the practices are spread out. So it's hard to cover the territory and have enough work in a concentrated area. Um, this, this program has been around since 2010. Um, my numbers say that we've put people in more than 415 federally designated shortage areas across 45 states. Um, but there's still, like I said, 113 unfilled areas this year alone. And one of the things I mentioned before, the 39% tax, all the other healthcare professions, and many years ago, I remember there used to be a great television show. The name's escaping me now, but there was a physician who went to Alaska, um, and um, what was it called? Northern Exposure, I think the TV show was, where he basically did government service and was paid by the government to go to an underserved area. The other healthcare professionals in the United States actually get the full funding, but the veterinary profession is the only one that gets hit with a 39% tax that's taken off before the withholding tax on the program awards. Um, and the parallel programs, like I said, for human health care professionals, that frees up, they don't have that tax. And so we have something that we've been working on for a long time called the Veterinary Medicine Loan Repayment Program Enhancement Act, um, which would basically uh, maximize limited congressional resources to increase the reach and the effectiveness of the Veterinary Medicine Loan Repayment Program. So we're trying to enhance it to try and put us on a level playing field with our other, uh, our fellow healthcare professionals. So veterinarians are sort of not isolated in the fact that they get whacked at a 39% rate. We're talking with Dr. John DeYoung, president of the American Veterinary Medical Association. So the issue, and you you referred to this earlier, is it? It's not that there aren't people wanting to become veterinarians or actually even studying to be veterinarians. The issue is where they locate, and we've we've heard this for a number of years now that the, it's just more lucrative or or a more attractive lifestyle to go with the the small animal practice rather than the large animal practice out in in, in a rural area. There is there is definitely some truth to that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a companion animal animal practitioner in the Boston area, um, and I have colleagues in the AVMA uh, on the board of directors that I've served with for many years that are in more rural areas, but it is much harder for them to make a living. The remuneration or the salaries aren't the same. Um, so I, I, you asked that question before, and there's no question that uh, inner-city salaries, because inner-city salaries are higher, but also the cost of living is higher too. But that sort of all gets weighed in when you negotiate with um, veterinarians that you're hiring. So, yeah, the inner cities are going to, and the urban areas are going to pay better than the rural areas in general. Um, and it's it's been around. This this problem is nothing new. It's been we've been working on it for a while. We're grateful to Congress for for seeing fit to give us the awards they have given us. But we're we're still a long ways from where we need to be. And 
Um, it's, it's, there are many parts of the country where there's just not a veterinarian for a, a reasonable amount of space um, of the animals in that area and therefore affecting the economy and potentially if there were a disease outbreak, even public health. So um, we continue to work on it, and um, I guess we're grateful for what we got, but we still definitely think that there's more that needs to be done. And that that issue of a potential disease outbreak, I think that's one that a lot of people don't think about, how vulnerable we are and the the need for those veterinarians out in the country if we have to deal with a situation like that. Absolutely. Um, it, it's a real problem. Um, we, the USDA actually has designated 187 veterinary shortage areas across the country. And, uh, you know, there were 1,300 veterinarians that have applied to this program in the last between 2010 and 2017. As I mentioned before, 415 awards have been made to date. Um, and 80% of the veterinarians actually that had completed their service in two years ago indicated they intended to remain in the areas they serve. question is whether they'll be able to. Because, I mean, let's be real. It costs a lot to move. Um, once you develop a relationship with people in the area, you want to stay there. But realistically, it is tough for them to... Uh, to make a reasonable living and sustain themselves and their families in those areas. We talk a lot about the challenges uh, of rural health care. We usually think of it as far as doctors and hospitals for people, but the, those rural health care challenges uh, apply to animals as well. Absolutely. Without question, you are spot on that one. All right. So this is, a, as you said, it's not a new issue, but it's one that um, – while you're working on it, there's still a lot of work to be done, and hopefully this will be turned around. You're you're wanting people to reach out to their members of Congress on this, right? Oh my gosh, you, you just took the words out of my mouth. Thank you, Mike. Uh, yes, absolutely. It would be great if people can can uh, reach out to their members of Congress to support the Veterinary Medicine Loan Repayment Enhancement Act, um, which is something that would be helpful to us um, as far as so we can send more people out, and, and more especially. Um, and the 39% income withholding tax on the program awards. I think if if, um, if the awards suddenly have an extra 39% that the veterinarian gets to keep in their pocket, we may get more applicants. It may be more attractive, and hopefully we can resolve some of these problems and free up those monies. But Congress is going to have to find the money. But, yes, by all means, contact your members of Congress. We ask for your support. And if people have questions, they can also always go to avma.org um, and contact us. We're happy to answer any questions and serve. You know, for a long time, I've, I've said veterinary medicine, we're not just companion animal medicine and the human-animal bond, but we're food safety, we're food-animal right. production, we're research, education, uh, animal welfare, and One Health. And uh, Dr. DeYoung, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Have a great day. On road or off road, you'll find the FS lubricant you need from our full line of premium quality products. At FS, our lubricants use the highest quality base oils and latest additive technology to meet and exceed most manufacturer specifications. Advanced protection against wear ensures you'll get maximum value for both your lubricant and equipment investments. Squeeze every bit of performance out of every piece of equipment you own. Let the FS energy specialists help you go further. Go further with FS. Visit GoFurtherWithFS.com for more information. What does Meals on Wheels do? They deliver meals and smiles to homebound seniors. But Meals on Wheels does something else. They turn a volunteer's lunch break into a meaningful experience. As small and as simple as the relationship is between a volunteer and a client of Meals on Wheels, it's really so impactful. I never thought that five minutes could make so much difference in the lives of two people. 
school, but it has. Drop off a warm meal and get more than you expect. Volunteer at americaletsdolunch.org. That's americaletsdolunch.org. Brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. I'm broadcasting from the 2018 South Dakota Cattlemen's Association 70th Annual Convention and Trade Show that's underway in Huron, South Dakota at the Crossroads Hotel and Huron Event Center. Currently, producers hearing a market outlook from Troy Bockelman of Cattle Facts. In live cattle futures, an hour into this Thursday trading session, we're trending 60 cents to a dollar five lower. Feeder cattle, a dollar five to a dollar 25 lower. Cash cattle activity, we saw some late business yesterday in the south, but not enough to establish a trend according to the wire talk. In lean hog futures, December contract, a dollar two higher at 58.97. For the grain and oil seed sector, we've seen some minus signs early in soybean futures, some five and a fraction lower. January down five and a half at 885. December corn a quarter cent higher at 360 and a half. March up a quarter of a cent at 373 and a quarter. The U.S. and China will talk about trade this weekend at the G20 summit meeting. It could have a big impact on soybean and commodity prices and the trend for the global economy too. Wheat futures, Chicago, March contract, down three quarters of a cent at 510 and three quarters. Kansas City wheat March, a penny higher at 493 and a quarter. Minneapolis spring wheat March, a half cent higher at 572. Outside markets on this Thursday trading session, the Dow has been trending into negative territory, down 88, S&P down 12. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture, presented by the American Ag Network. I'm Rusty Halverson. Thousands of people contact InventHelp monthly about their invention or new product. Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Call InventHelp now. Best of all, the call and information are free. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential, explaining every step of the invention process. We create professional materials and submit them to companies who are looking for new ideas in your category. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review new ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing, Manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We offer 3D modeling and animation, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to present client ideas to additional companies. Join people just like you who made the call to InventHelp. You have nothing to lose. The call and the information are free. Call 1-800-213-4556. That's 1-800-213-4556. Again, 1-800-213-4556. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. All right, so we have an agreement on the farm bill, but it's not a done deal yet. There's still some technical work to be done, some scoring to be done, and things like that, so we don't have the details. But let's talk about where we're at right now with Andrew Walmsley, uh, Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Andrew, thanks for joining us. What do you know about the deal uh, so far? Well, uh, they're keeping a pretty tight lid on, on exact details. We haven't learned uh, too much, really, out of what has been said 
publicly, uh, particularly the hold up earlier this week around forestry. It sounded like uh, some of the push to include more of the House provisions uh, don't appear to, to be in the bill. Um, but obviously, very positive news, a good sign that uh, there was a statement this morning, a formal statement by all four principals that they have reached an agreement. Uh, and they're just kind of working on a lot of the paperwork that now has to take place to wrap this thing up and hopefully give, a, give us opportunity to see it on the floor as soon as next week. Now, when they say it has to have CBO scoring, what does that entail? Well, they got to figure out how much it's going to cost, and within the parameters they're required to, to uh, stay within, uh, they've, they've got to get it scored. And I think they've got a pretty good idea. Uh, they've been working the last uh, several months on, you know, what different options would do to that baseline, what it would do to the budget score. Uh, so now it's just kind of putting all the pieces back together, uh, make sure they get a – get a number from CBO that they can roll with. Uh, obviously, a lot of this, too, is, is being negotiated as, as, a, as, as an idea, as principle, uh, you know, on policy. They've got to get that now into legislative text. And of course, a lot of the bill's already been done, but those last outstanding issues that they've been working on now has to go uh, through that process. And, you know, talking a little bit earlier this week with staff, they would think it could take close to a week to maybe get all that paperwork done, but with the pressure coming from leadership, the need to get this done we could move a little sooner than that then how long do you think it will take before it goes up for a vote i think we could move pretty quickly once the uh, paperwork's uh, taken care of it was indicated to us yesterday afternoon that they still intend to uh, move the farm bill as a standalone piece of legislation you know we talked earlier this week about all the other things congress is currently working on in the year appropriations package possibly tax extenders um, it sounds like they're still going to try to move the farm bill by itself, and, and I think that's kind of the pressure and the rush to get that done and potentially to the floor to the of, of floor to either chamber the middle of next week uh, before funding runs out for for a host of government programs on the seventh. Now, I would guess also going on behind the scenes will be the uh, vote count, right, to make sure they have the votes to pass it. Yeah, that'll obviously be part of it. Uh, hopefully, when you've reached an agreement like this, you've already got a pretty good idea where uh, both your caucuses will be in each chamber. But it, it's, you know, obviously we're far from certain uh, that we'll actually uh, have the votes, but pretty confident that that we should. So definitely not a time to let up on the accelerator. You know, for those folks uh, involved with different commodity groups or, you know, our Farm Bureau members will be uh, sending action alerts out uh, probably starting at the beginning of next week to make sure uh, their members of Congress, those senators that maybe haven't been as close to the negotiations, uh, are reminded how important it is to get this farm bill done. Talking with Andrew Walmsley with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Andrew, throughout it's been uh, kind of a, a back and forth. Will the final bill look more like the Senate version or the House version? Which do you think it is? I, I don't know if you'll be able to point and say it looks like one or the other. I really think it's, uh, it's going to be a compromise uh, depending on title, uh, which bill looks more like the other. Uh, it's my understanding, the commodity title, uh, they've been able to maybe take really some of the best parts of each of the House and Senate bill on trying to improve ARC and PLC. Uh, they're able to hopefully do that. You know, the conservation title has been one of those sticking points. Uh, we'll probably see, you know, a lot of the things that we saw in the Senate bill in there with hopefully some. Uh, improvements that we, at least we feel, were improvements from the House bill, although the structure will probably look much more like the Senate. You know, nutrition, they haven't really uh, indicated the details on what that will look like. My guess is some of the House provisions didn't survive. 
um, but they do have an agreement, and then otherwise it just will be a melding of, of some of the best policy between the two bills, hopefully. The forestry issue, which is threatened to bring it all down, uh, we've seen in the past when they couldn't agree on, on forestry issues, they did that in a separate bill. Do you think it'll be separate or part of the farm bill? Well, Senator Stabenow kind of uh, had a tip of the hat to that to that idea. You know, earlier uh, in the 2000s with the earlier uh, farm bill then, um, they ended up having to do that. I don't know if we have time to do that. There's been no indication that that will take place. But it's the end of the year. It's a lame duck. Uh, deals are being made. It does sound like there won't be a lot of the forestry provisions in the farm bill. Uh, you know, obviously we want to get a farm bill done, but we are a little frustrated. Our, our farmers, uh, ranchers, landowners know how important it is to manage land, and we continue to see uh, the frustrations they have with how the federal government tends to manage theirs, these catastrophic wildfires out in California. You know, my experience growing up in Florida, and, uh, you know, we let the state burn in 98, and ever since then we've been really active on managing land, trying to prevent that from mechanical harvesting to control uh, control burns, you know, has really made a difference. It's an important part of the cycle. So, you know, we would like to see more of that. I'm not sure where we go from here, but it doesn't sound like a lot of the forestry provisions are going to end up being in the, in the final farm bill report. I believe if you include today, there are only 10 joint legislative days currently on the, uh, on the calendar. Uh, I would think, given Senate Majority Leader McConnell's uh, uh, well-known uh, position of wanting to get this done, he's going to push to get it uh, up for a vote pretty quickly. Yeah, I think we would be more concerned if you didn't have the support of leadership, particularly uh, the personal interest that Leader McConnell's taken in this. You know, through this whole process, uh, he, as a member of the Senate Ag Committee, sat through the markup, appointed himself uh, as a conference, uh, as a conferee to the to the Farm Bill Conference. You know, quickly moved the bill through the Senate just before the July Fourth uh, recess. So, uh, you know, typically the Senate can be a stumbling block when you're short on time. Uh, so hopefully with this being a bipartisan, bicameral agreement and Leader McConnell's leadership, uh, that we could move pretty quickly in the Senate and the House follow suit. All right, Andrew. Uh, so we'll be watching for the details and the schedule on the Farm Bill vote. What about the, the tax extenders and, and those other issues that have some real implications for agriculture as well? Where do they stand? Well, there's a lot of work still ongoing. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I've actually seen the House schedule a vote on the tax extenders. We you know, we mentioned earlier that the receptive, reception in the Senate maybe wasn't as warm as some as, as hoped, so I think that's still uncertain. Appropriations work's ongoing. Sounds like they're getting close on a host of those bills. You know, one of those, the ag appropriations. You know, obviously we're watching the, the TIA, the transportation bill, uh, pretty closely because of the electronic logging device. Uh, language that's in that, that's preventing that to take effect on our insect and livestock haulers as we continue to seek a resolution with hours of service. But it sounds like progress is being made. Uh, still not completely clear if they're going to meet the December 7th deadline or we're going to see th- some type of short-term CR, maybe a week to continue to work through that, or if they'll have a deal in place. Yeah, these there are a lot of important issues that really get pushed to the very end here, and sometimes, uh, you know, it, it, it just becomes such a crammed schedule. As you said, they could extend themselves a little bit, uh, but these are important issues they have to address. Yeah, it should be a little disconcerting for all Americans, right, how we operate sometimes yeah. in Washington and how many 
uh, profound impacts they have uh, in our daily lives or, or from a regulation standpoint on your businesses. But uh, that's tended to be more and more how Washington operates, so it'll be a sprint to the finish. Uh, to see if we, you know, we might extend it into December 14th to, to work through everything. They're supposed to be in schedule or be in session till then. Uh, so yet to be seen, but a lot of work taking place. All right. So we'll watch for uh, the uh, the agreement announcement on on the farm bill as far as when the scoring and all that is done. I, I often wonder when it comes down like this and they go to vote on a on a bill such as the farm bill some of those senators some of those congressmen i wonder how much they really read it or know what's in there when they go to vote well that is always a concern but there's been conversations ongoing for a while you know the the ag committees uh, have been communicating with their members on on a majority vast majority of the bill so there's a handful of things that were uh, not wrapped up and so it'll be quick to point to those once they're kind of put into the text you know what you're looking for to see uh, how those settled out, but it will be moving pretty quickly. Uh, that'll be, you know, a frantic time for for House staff, Senate staff to review the bill. All of us that are, have an interest in the bill will be going through it and uh, definitely highlighting what we like. Unfortunately, it's probably a little too late to change anything, but hopefully they've got it right. We've done our work up to this point, um, letting them know what's good for agriculture. Yeah, you mentioned the points of interest, and I'm wondering about some of those uh, members of Congress that usually don't look too closely at a farm bill, unless there's a particular issue that might affect uh, their their voters back home. Then maybe they look at that, and maybe not so much the rest of it. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of folks like that in Congress that have one or two issues that they push for to be included or that are important to their district uh, that could sway where they end up. Uh, you know, and there's going to be some that just aren't going to vote for it, period. So hopefully there's enough compromise to get us uh, the votes that we need. Typically, if you've got an agreement, leadership signing off on it, uh, there's that expectation. But uh, obviously it's an important time uh, for that kind of grassroots engagement, all of us to do our job to, to make sure they know how important it is to get this bill finished. Well, we're finally close. Let's hope they get it across the finish line. Andrew, thank you very much for the update. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you. Andrew Walmsley, Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. So, yeah, you can be sure that uh, while the the paperwork's being worked on and they're going through the, the scoring with the CBO, that also there's a lot of discussions going on in hallways to make sure they have the votes that are needed when this thing comes to the floor uh, to be voted on the get it done so a lot of those discussions no doubt are taking place coming up next we're going to talk with Catherine boudreau with politico what is she hearing on the farm bill uh, as she covers it there in washington dc uh, what are some of those discussions going on that she is hearing about and what about the uh, the vote coming up do, do they have the votes we'll get her thoughts and all that when we come back stay with us here on aoa adams on agriculture threat calls for a greater response when there's a battle bring strength when there's a problem seek answers when there is doubt give hope not tomorrow not in a few years but right now, 
Some battles must be faced together. Cancer fighters stand up to cancer every day. And you can be part of this battle too. Visit StandUpToCancer.org to learn more. Together, we can save lives. Okay, men. This is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're gonna go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You gotta dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. I know you won't because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. <clears throat> Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. If you suffer from heartburn or other digestive-related disorders, then there is a new, safe, better, and natural alternative to better digestive wellness and heartburn relief. Praxid not only provides relief of heartburn, but Praxid takes a 360-degree approach to support better digestion, protect you from harmful bacteria, and also balance your stomach to improve digestive functions. We like to think of it as the multivitamin of digestive health. It's the only product to combine all natural ingredients known for the digestive health properties into a single patented product. Praxid also comes in easy-to-carry packs. Praxid relieves, restores, and maintains a healthy digestive system. Praxid is available here for only $39.95. Shipping and handling is free, and your money back is guaranteed. To take advantage of this special radio offer, call now, 1-800-829-5705. That's 1-800-829-5705. Again, 1-800-829-5705. Do you need a car? Been shopping only to be turned down because of bad credit, low credit, no credit, bankruptcy, or divorce? Guess what? Today's your lucky day. Because now you can buy a car, truck, or SUV, just about any vehicle. It's true. Bad credit doesn't matter. No credit doesn't matter. Bankruptcy or divorce, it just doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, your job is your ticket to your new vehicle. We're Auto Credit Express, and we've helped thousands of people just like you. 
Antonio H. told us, great company, got me connected, and the day I went in, I drove off in the car I wanted. 100% worth your time. Need a car? Get started now and drive off as early as today. Just go to 11ignoremyscore.com right now. That's www.11ignoremyscore.com. Auto financing the easy way. 11ignoremyscore.com. Get started today. Auto financing the easy way. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. So again, the House and Senate ag leaders say they've reached an agreement in principle on the new farm bill. They've got technical work, uh, paperwork, and CBO scoring and things like that to do yet, so we don't have all the details. But at least they have an agreement in principle. Joining us now is Catherine Boudreau with Politico. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Uh, take us behind the scenes. Uh, what went on to get them to this point where they came to an agreement in principle? Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for having me back. Uh, yeah, so this has been a month-long slog to get to this point where the four farm bill negotiators can officially announce that they've reached an agreement. Uh, and, you know, I did report that this was, in fact, the case last night, but I have to say it took some reading between the lines. Uh, I went to a informal press conference that Senate Agriculture Chairman Pat Roberts and Ranking Member Debbie Stabenow held yesterday, and they said they said to reporters, you know, we're very, very close. Um, and so what that meant was that, yes, the major obstacles to getting a deal, like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as food stamps, as well as forestry and farm subsidy programs, have all really, uh, at this point, pretty much been overcome. Um, so right now it's just about putting that sweeping legislation together, which, you know, also covers, like, conservation, trade, rural development, credit. Um, so they have to, you know, cross the T's, dot the I's, so to speak, and then um, they have to get this score from the Congressional Budget Office. So I think that's why lawmakers were kind of cautioning that, sure, we have a deal in principle, but things could change because I can't tell you how important the cost estimates are to this farm bill. It, like, shapes so much, um, and that's because – you know, the lawmakers didn't want to write a, a farm bill that would cost more over 10 years than what's already projected to be spent under the current legislation or the current law. Um, so it takes a lot of, uh, it's like a puzzle, you know, every title has to cost a certain amount. Um, but yeah, I mean, so this has been months of my team and I stalking the Capitol Hill, stalking Capitol Hill hallways and tracking down lawmakers as they, you know, have closed door meetings and make incremental process. And a lot of this work is done at the staff level, too. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to have an agreement at this point. Do you think I, I'm assuming that they feel fairly certain that the, the cost uh, estimates are going to come in uh, at a level that is okay. Uh, but what happens if the CBO scoring comes back and says, whoa, it's way more? And, uh, I mean, does that uh, throw everything back uh, to square one, or, or what happens at that point? I think there is a lot of um, back and forth with the Congressional Budget Office as the lawmakers and their staff are working on this legislation. So I would I would think that they're pretty confident at this point that, you know, it's going to come in. It's, it's estimated cost about um, – a little like more than 800 million over a decade. So uh, I'm pretty, or sorry, 800 billion over a decade. So I, I think that they have a pretty good 
idea of the cost and you know it's not like they put it together and then send it over to cbo and it's like oh no you know it's, it's a back yeah. and forth um so i'm i don't know how long it'll take to get the the final score back but um you know i i'm obviously everybody's uh, eyeing the end, before the end of the year to get this thing to the president's desk. So um, the sooner the better for the lawmakers. Did they put forestry, did they get that worked out in the farm bill, or did they decide to make that a separate uh, issue? That's a great question. Um, I don't know that at this point. Uh, and, of course, House, this was a leadership battle that kind of emerged last minute this week. So House and Senate leadership had to settle a disagreement over forestry management with the White House in order to get this deal. And that's because after the, you know, destructive and deadly California wildfires, Agriculture Secretary Purdue and Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke made a public push to exempt practices like forest thinning uh, and other management practices from more extensive environmental reviews. Uh, and that's similar to what the House bill had proposed, uh, but the Senate was, was a major obstacle. They pushed back on that. Um, there's a lot of concern about the environmental impacts. So uh, there was, um, they didn't, they were, senators were, didn't think it could pass the, the, the upper chamber. Uh, so then Senator Roberts said Wednesday that the forestry title wouldn't be as comprehensive as some had hoped. So I, I assume he was referring to House Republicans and the administration. And then Senator Sabanow mentioned that in the 2002 Farm Bill, lawmakers couldn't agree on the forestry title. So they just took it out entirely and passed it as a standalone bill the following year. Uh, and then she, you know, of course, cautioned that, you know, that I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but she did note that that has happened in the past. So still to be determined on whether it's in the farm bill, the final deal. All right. So now I would imagine there are a lot of conversations going on to make sure they have the votes to pass it when it comes uh, to the floor. Where do you think they stand on that? Yeah, that's that's so true. I mean, the, the, um, the question, I think, has always been if uh, House or Republicans would vote for a final farm farm bill, and that's because uh, I think lawmakers are probably not going as far as they did in the House bill on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. I mean, there's there's really been a tight lid on what the compromise was on this like very high profile policy fight. Um, but I think the expectation is that the final deal won't include stricter work requirements for millions of recipients of food stamps. Um, and they probably more tinkered around the edges, you could say, of SNAP and probably avoided like major cuts to that $70 billion a year program. Uh, so this was, uh, I think, a major reason a lot of House Republicans voted for, the, for Chairman Conway's version uh, the first time around. And if that if those changes aren't in the final bill, it's a big question about what, whether they'll vote for it. So I think they'll probably have to rely on Democrats. And at this point, I don't have a, a, a head count of any sort on, you know, how many Republicans would vote for it or not and how many Dems would or not. It's still early, but that's certainly something I'm going to be uh, tracking every day <laughs> while lawmakers are in session. Yeah, that's the next step. Now, we know Colin Peterson has said if he liked it, uh, he could deliver a lot of Democratic votes. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, his during when the House was trying to pass the farm bill the first time, uh, the Democrats pretty much stuck together as a block. Uh, uh, Congressman Colin Peterson and uh, minority minority leader Nancy Pelosi they kind of worked together to uh, make sure that all the Democrats were in line and they were doing it as a party. Um, that you know many Democrats didn't even offer amendments at the uh, advice of. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Colin Peterson and Nancy Pelosi. Well, we're close now. Just got to get it pushed across the finish line. Catherine, thanks for all your great reporting, and we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much. Take care. Catherine Boudreaux with Politico. So we'll keep you updated on uh, the Farm Bill tomorrow, the RFS numbers, and much, much more. Hope you'll join us right here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Have a great day, everyone. 